0: (laughs) This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a 15th anniversary special. At a live event in WNYC's Green Space in New York City, Debbie interviewed actor and poet Amber Tamblyn. Here's Debbie. Amber Tamblyn is an actor.
1: She launched her career on General Hospital, went on to star on the primetime show, Joan of Arcadia, and the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants films. She also directed the 2016 film, Paint It Black. And that's just the beginning of the extremely long list of television, film, and theater credits. Amber Tamblyn is also a poet. Poems she wrote in adolescence were collected in a book published by Simon & Schuster. Her latest book of poems, Dark Sparkler, about the lives and deaths of famous child actresses, was published by HarperCollins. Amber Tamblyn is also a novelist and a political activist with a front row seat in the Me Too movement. Her latest book is a feminist manifesto slash memoir titled Error of Ignition, Coming of Age in a Time of Rage and Revolution. Amber Tamblyn, welcome to this live 15th anniversary special episode of Design Matters at WNYC's Green Space in New York City. Thank you, Erin McKeown.
2: Erin McKeown. Amber, thank you, Debbie, for having me. I'm honored and congratulations thank to you. you. It's very exciting. Thank you.
1: Thank you for being here. Amber, in your second book of poetry, Bang Ditto, you write about how when you were 15 years old, you decided to test out the most famous worst nightmare possible and, quote, walked into your high school campus completely naked, a blue Jansport backpack over your shoulder, and pumas on your feet with six pubes to your name. You got as far as the first quad of the school before getting tackled, with a coat by one of your teachers. True
2: or false? Very true, (laughs) yeah. Details, please. That was sort of, I think, you know, I've been, I'm 36 now and I've been acting since I was 10 years old. I think that that was the beginning of me testing out the limitations or maybe the ability of my body outside of an object that was owned by an industry so by that point I probably had already been acting for five years or something and I acted out a lot I did a lot of things to sort of test and see what I was allowed to do what I wasn't allowed to do and I completely forgot about that until you just brought it up and I am feel like I'm blushing deeply on the inside.
1: <laughs> well, I was actually a little worried because I was waiting for that moment of recognition in your face, which wasn't happening. And I'm like, that's why I added true or false, because I thought you might say,
2: oh, I made that up. It Literally, was part of a poem. No one has ever asked me that question ever in all the books I've written in all that. I think that's why I'm so used to hearing. But it, now I'm scared because now I know you've done your research. So I'm really <laughs> scared to see
1: what's coming well, next. Well, one more true or false question, which I suspect is probably true, but it's one of those questions that really begs to be asked. You write about how at 16 you got your nipples yes, pierced. Yes, the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> The answers yes so, so just so my audience is is in in the loop you got your n- nipples pierced the same week you won a hollywood reporter award for your role on general hospital yes was that like a celebratory
2: piercing? um i think i think it might have been a little masochistic and i think again just the exploration of what i was allowed to do with my own body in a in an industry that dictates you know not only everything you need to wear to be successful but the way in which you have to um, speak and look, the way your face has to look, uh, the texture of your face, the texture of your body, like all of those things were, um, I was highly aware of them from a young age that I didn't feel right in my skin in a certain way. And I wanted to test the limitations of my own physical skin.
1: I wanna talk a lot more about that. I want to um, just take you a little bit through the early parts of your life pre-being an actress. Uh, You were born in Santa Monica, California to a family immersed in show business. Your father, Russ Tamblyn, starred in the iconic films West Side Story, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and the television series, Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Your grandfather, Eddie Tamblin was a vaudeville performer, and your uncle, Larry Tamblin was a keyboardist in the 1960s rock band, The Standells. Family friends include Ed Ruscha, Neil Young, Dean Stockwell, Dennis Hopper, who was rumored to be your godfather. Was it just assumed you were gonna follow in your family's Hollywood footsteps?
2: Yes, I was born and raised around a lot of narcissistic white men <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so was I, but I'm not a famous actress <laughs> <laughs> um i yeah that those those are definitely people who were very much in my life i would say more more so and they they were i mean Godfather was such a loose term i they my parents were true, you know California free spirit hippies um so For the most part, that was a loose term that meant they were important figures in my life, and there was many of them, the men you mentioned. There was also a lot of poets, a lot of poets. There was Jack Hirschman, who's the former Poet Laureate of San Francisco. Um, He's still there in San Francisco writing, an incredible poet. Um, There was Wanda Coleman, who was uh, one of the most extraordinary poets, Los Angeles poets, who's no longer with us. Um, They called her the unofficial Poet Laureate of Los Angeles, which is um, probably apropos for um, you know, a black woman who had done all that she had done for the city of Los Angeles for them to give her that kind of uh, language or title. But she was extraordinary, and so I was raised around a lot of um, poets growing up as well, which informed a lot of my work. Not just the poetry or the writing, but the filmmaking and all of it. You played Pippi
1: Longstocking in a school play when you were 10 years old, which in many ways launched your acting career. You then got the role of Emily Quatermain on General Hospital when you were 11. Just so you know, I'm like an OG General Hospital watcher. (laughs) From the 70s, from like Luke and Laura days. That's amazing. And that was the only one I ever watched. I never watched any other soap opera. But in any case, you were on General Hospital until you were 17, playing a heroin-addicted former model whose mother had died of cancer. Drama. As soap operas do.
2: Now, did you go to school? Were you able to go to school while you were doing this? Um, I went to public school, public uh, grade school and high school, and never went to college. But I, um, I. I, you have to go back and forth from set, so it was very complicated and difficult in that way. You'd have to take work from the schools, uh, from the teachers, and tell them you'd be absent that day, and you were expected to do, you had to do by law a certain number of hours of tutoring on the set per day. So you would do that with a school teacher. My teacher's name was Hermine. She was amazing. She got me into math, which you know. I can't believe that's a true thing, that I could like math, but I did. Uh, I don't remember any of it, but Hermine was great. And then you would have to take these sort of pink slips saying that you did that work back to the school, back and forth. So I, I did some amount of, um, of schooling when I was younger.
1: You're known for many iconic roles beyond Emily Quartermain on General Hospital. You were Joan Girardi on Joan of Arcadia, Martha M. Masters on House, named for one of your actual friends, Martha yes. Masters, Jenny Harper on Two and a Half Men, and Tibby Rollins in the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants films.
2: How do you feel about those roles now? I have, a, I have many feelings. Um, I, I have so many feels. Um, I've spent, I think, so much of my now adult life exercising the pain um, having an exorcism of the pain of those experiences of growing up uh, in the business Um, but i also have a deep sense of love and pride for those characters and you know things that you would not expect you could bring off the page you could uh, and i feel that i did i guess in a certain way especially with things like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Who knew that that would be so deep and so filled with emotion and turn out to be such a wonderful, wonderful experience, and I came away from that with some of the closest friendships of my life with my cast members, America Ferreira, Blake Lively, and Alexis Bledel. Um, But it does really feel like a different life uh, in a certain way. It feels very separate than where I've been in the last maybe – eight years, um, eight to ten years almost. Um, and for the most part, I, I haven't really thought much about acting or the things that, you know, it, the way in which it brought joy to my life during those years. Um, but I think because I've had so much distance from it, uh, I have a, a new appreciation for it in a way that I didn't before. I'm about to shoot a show for FX, and it'll be my first time doing something that I – I'm like very, very excited about is a very exciting role. And um, uh, so I have been thinking about it a lot lately, but I haven't, I just haven't thought about any acting, any of the stuff that I've done in a long time. It's interesting that you're bringing it up because it's been at the forefront of my thought lately because of that. Well I have a bunch more questions about it, but I do want to ask you if it's true that
1: you told John Cryer to go fuck himself in your audition for two and a half men,
2: which was in front of Chuck Laurie. Oh, one hundred percent. So what what brought that? I think down? I also told Chuck Lorre to go fuck himself. <laughs> um Fair. <laughs> well, it was the care it was the character was this um She was sort of supposed to replace the half man idea. She was Charlie Harper's daughter, who was basically just a woman version of him. Just a alcoholic, foul mouth womanizer. Um, And so I also was like, I actually don't really care if I do two and a half men. This is not like an audition that's gonna break me. Um, And so I was rude. To all of the men in the room. (laughs) And got the part. And I I I also... Men like that, don't they? Sometimes they, those types of men do. I mean, as I said, I know narcissistic white men very well. Um, Although both of them are lovely and John Cryer is especially wonderful. um, I think I had also signed in on the audition sheet a fake name, which is kind of like a really messed up thing to do, especially if you're going up first in the morning. I think I signed in as Jennifer Lawrence. (laughs) <laughs> because then everyone who comes after you is looking and they're like, oh, fuck, Jennifer Lawrence auditioned for this shit? <laughs> shit. Okay, I got to up my game. I was so like, you have Man. a little bit
1: of a sadomasochist streak in you. <laughs> yeah, I
2: guess so. God, Debbie's getting real tonight. Someone um, get me a drink. <laughs> I think we can make that happen.
1: Um, you've said that show business is voyeuristic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if you're an actress, you're playing that which the voyeur looks at for a living people look at you to escape their realities, to invent their own new realities. How do you? How did you manage to keep your own identity? And how have you been able to avoid the often
2: treacherous pit balls that other child actors have succumbed to? So funny, because we were just talking about yeah. this. Um, I think it's twofold for me. Obviously, I think having parents who were a strong, support system in my life. It was a real privilege to have that kind of upbringing and family. Uh, And I think also poetry. Poetry really saved me in a way. Poetry was a third parent. Poetry was a guardian. It was a way for me to reflect on those experiences and be able to put on the page the feelings that I had, whether it was anger or frustration or feeling invisible or feeling objectified, all of those things. Poetry was a real way for me to let those things out early on from a young age. And so I've been writing – most people – well, I'd say maybe less so now, but there was, a to- there was a time at which most people were really shocked that I was a poet, even though I had been publishing, you know, the Simon and Schuster book that I wrote, Free Stallion, was poems written age 11 to 21. Um, I'd been writing as long as I'd been acting. These were two co- coinciding forms of art and expression that I'd done from a very young age, and they very much informed each other. And one was like a salve to the other in a certain way. Well, you said that poetry was one of the few areas in your life where you felt like you had full control. Why did it make you feel like you had control? Well, as an actress, you are creating something that's only really half yours, if that. You are putting yourself on the line emotionally, often physically, psychologically, um, for something you have no control over. You are... Interpreting the words of someone else that they've written, you are um, you are creating the world that a show creator has written and has created that they have envisioned. Um, you are moving in the way that a director is telling you to move. Um, so much of that is about an interpretation of someone else's art, of all of the people's art around you, which is a great joy. And the people who do it really well are masters at it. You know, it's it is using that empathic tool to tell a really deep and and important story if you're if if that is something that you're very good at but at the same time after the acting experience and this is something that I think so many people don't understand about our business is that you probably have only ever seen like 30% of the stuff that I have done if that and that's any actor that's Meryl Streep that's the most famous actor and the least known actor because Once you've acted, there's so many other levels that that piece of work has to go through in order to succeed to see the light of day. It has to be edited very well. And you have to hope that the editor and director are on the same page and that the director directed it well. Then you have to hope even if you have a good film, Uh, you have to hope that it goes into a festival. And then even if it gets into a festival, you have to hope it gets bought. And then if it gets bought, you have to hope they put the right marketing behind it. And then if they do that, you still have to hope that people go to theaters and see it. Same thing could be said about television. You know, you create something all the way through if you're doing a pilot. It may never see the light of day. Or it might go on and you know air for five episodes and disappear. So it's a strange industry because you pour your heart and soul and physical self into things that often no one ever sees or no one knows about. So in that way, I really felt like writing for me, at least if I failed by it, I was failing by 100% of my own self-expression, as opposed to 50% of an expression that was part of me that still might fail anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: There seems to be a lot of judgment when an actor tries something other than acting, whether it be writing, music, politics, even activism. Did it feel it was harder to be taken seriously as a poet because of your celebrity?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think there was. I think I got discouraged early um, about ever sort of submitting my work or... um, uh, doing anything with it other than just writing and performing, I would do book tours. I would, um, I would frequent a place called Beyond Baroque in Los Angeles, where I would read a lot. And I, I think around the time I was writing Dark Sparkler, which really, really was a kind of exorcism for me. It was a, it, I was deep in the middle of a real existential crisis, trying to figure out what I wanted to be outside of this idea of going into other people's rooms and auditioning and interpreting their work and knowing I had so much more to offer.
1: What and, did the existential
2: crisis stem from? Well, it stemmed from the fact that I had only ever really played other people for a living my whole life since I was 11. You know, people always ask me like how how old were you when you knew you wanted to act? And that sentence, that idea is something that I have come up against and talked about in therapy for so many years, to think about how does a child have a choice? What choice does the child have in choosing that life? It's not really a child's choice. That's the choice of adults. And then the child spends their time trying to please adults by performing. And so then your life becomes performative. You are a walking, talking, living performance. It's complicated. And so so Dark Sparkler was sort of this reckoning for myself, coming to terms with myself, with also how do you how do you talk about this pain? How do you talk about this invisibility while still knowing you are the most privileged person in any given room for the money you make, the job you have, the industry you're in, that people would love to be a part of. And and how I, I was trying to find a way to talk about my experience and my need for a certain kind of death. I mean, really I was seeking death, not literal death, but a metaphorical death. I was ending I was ceasing and I was I was seeking an a ceasing, if that makes sense. An ending to the person that I was when I was younger, that person that really didn't have any control over her life while she was creating these incredible characters that bring people so much joy and i often had so much fun shooting them there was an entire part of myself that was dying that was that was not being given an opportunity to thrive and to become more and that book was a direct i think moment for me to um to let those things be talked about uh on a page and to be able to see them and see my own experiences, not only writing about these actresses that had literally died, but then writing these meta poems in the back about, you know, uh, my experience writing about dead actresses. And it was actually Roxane Gay who published the first poem, I it was like my first published poem ever. She uh, published this poem about Brittany Murphy. Um, And I remember submitting it to Pank. A friend had said, you gotta submit, you know, there's a great editor there now. And I was like, no one's ever gonna publish my work. I'm an actress. I can't, I'll just, I'll take myself seriously and that's fine. And I think she wrote me back in like two hours or something. It was very exciting. And it was a moment for me to feel like, oh, I'm, I'm, can be taken seriously in the art form that I've done as long as I've acted. It was a big moment.
1: Do you wanna read that poem
2: for us? Sure. Brittany Murphy. Her body dies like a spider's. In the shower, the blooming flower seeds a cemetery. A pill lodges in the inner pocket of her flesh coat. Her breasts were the gifts of ghosts, dark tarps of success. Her mouth dribbles over onto the bathroom floor, Pollock blood. The body is lifted from the red carpet, put in a black bag, taken to the mother's screams for identification. The country says good things about the body. They print the best photos, the least bones, the most peach. Candles are lit in the glint of every glam. Every magazine stand does the Southern Belle curtsy in her post box office bomb honor. The autopsy finds an easy answer. They say good things about the body, how bold her eyes were, bigger than Hepburn's, the way she could turn into her camera close-up like life depended on her. Thank you, Amber.
1: (laughs) You said that this book, in many ways, is the death of somebody who didn't believe in herself, who didn't think her poetry was good enough, who didn't think she was good enough to direct a film. And then you went on to direct a film. So how did you turn that corner?
2: I think if I ever said that, well maybe that's how I felt at that time. But I think it was more frustrating than that because I did believe I was a good poet. I did believe I could direct a film. I knew that I was capable of more. And it was everything around me that sort of felt like it was in the way. It was a business which is predominantly You know, dominated by uh, white men who are not particularly interested in, um, up until recently, giving women opportunities to direct, giving women opportunities to be in those positions of of power. Um, And so, I I think that for a long time, I had sort of looked at it as this huge obstacle because it was, and it was frustrating. In Era of Ignition, I talk about this idea of this invisible alphabet and how I, you know, I was. I was at A or B or C, and I could see this beautiful glowing Z in the distance, and I just didn't know how to be able to manifest the bridge of letters in between. And I think for most people, especially women, that's a very real feeling. You don't have to be in the entertainment business to feel like you see your potential, you see what you're made of, and how do you get others to see that? How do you show the world your capacity? How do you? Well, I guess you have to just be stubborn and keep trying. Um, that's not a great answer, but I think that's part of it. I think you have to keep making art if you can, if you have those resources, irregardless of what people will believe in of you. You have to um, keep pushing against the narrative of a society and a world around you that is often telling you to not be who you are and to not express yourself the way you want to express yourself um so I suppose those are some of the ways to do it I, that's how I did it anyway as I were just repeatedly kept pushing past the nose until I got to some yeses like Roxanne
1: As you researched the women that you wrote about, you discovered that there was nothing new to you about their experiences, which I thought was really interesting, whether it was suicide, thoughts of suicide, murder, suicide, eating disorders, drug addiction. And you stated that for most women, whether you're an actress or whatever you do, there is pressure in society to look a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way, say certain things and be an idea as opposed to being a person, yet you felt that this was the commonality that you had with them, knowing that shame and knowing what
2: that feels like. Do you feel like you've gotten over some of that shame? Oh, I've gotten over almost all of it, I would say. But that took mountains of work, of therapy, and um, for a while now I have, (laughs) this is gonna sound really morbid, everyone please enjoy your Prosecco. We I haven't gotten it yet. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so sorry. We're gonna, we're gonna do this right now, okay? Um, I, I often one of the ways in which I have um, worked through a lot of what you just talked about and and a lot of processing the damage that was done not only to me but to really close friends of mine who also grew up in the industry. Um, my father. Who was a child actor? Who started acting when he was nine years old, and he's now, you know, almost eighty-five. And I see the way in which he's famous. He was known for something, but I know the ways in which his life was taken from him. You know, he's having a hard time writing this memoir because he never got any schooling. My dad has a hard time spelling. I mean, it's there was a lot that was taken from him too. Um, so for me, I've spent a good amount of time, maybe in the last two years, every morning I meditate and I visualize my own death and I visualize a conversation with the people that I love um, and saying goodbye to them and I go through and I say goodbye to my husband and I say goodbye to my daughter and I say goodbye to my mom and I say goodbye to my best friends. And it's gotten easier. Um, and it's Really? A, yes, it has. Um, and part of that I think has allowed me to go deeper into my activism, my organizing, my writing um, to do something like that that feels so scary, to continu- con- continuously have this conversation with yourself about ending and beginning again and ending and beginning again. And I think for a lot of those women in my research, the, I mean, it just was at a certain point, writing, writing Dark Sparkler was like going down a rabbit hole of information, of really dark information. It took seven years to write that book. Um, And learning so much about the ways in which these women had such limitations that they were not really able to do that for themselves, you know. And instead, they found themselves in situations with men who murdered them or ways in which they died because of drugs or eating disorders, all the things that you mentioned. But it seemed to be the same types of things that were happening over and over again um, and that's throughout the world. I mean, there's a list in the back of the book that's like 15 pages long where I just list every actress who's ever died under the age of 40, every single one that I could possibly find. I've I've like, you know, challenged anyone to find someone different. So far, uh, I, I think I got them all. But that's, that was my own sort of, that was part of the exorcism, was sort of looking at their lives juxtaposed and looking at the ending of their lives juxtaposed with the ending of this life that I was so deeply yearning for. Why do so many people yearn for that life? Even if you look now at
1: the level of people that are Instagram famous or YouTube famous or Twitter famous, in addition to film and music and literature and so forth, there seems to be, and and maybe it's just my awareness of it, but there seems to be a bigger chase to fame in our society than there ever has before.
2: Yeah, well, we're Americans. We like the sparkle. We like the we like the bling. We like to be able to check out, and we like the entertainment value. Um, and I think a lot of people now, especially in this social media age, and I see it with my younger niece, and I see it with a lot of my friends. Um, you know to a certain degree, you want your own life to feel like entertainment. You want your own life to feel like the checkout, the bling, the sparkly object. Um, I think it helps us feel more disconnected from the pain of the world and the pain of this presidency and of the things that are happening in real life. And social media has become a real tool for checking out. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, It's also an incredible tool for Activism and voices that didn't have a platform before um, to finally find a way in which to be taken seriously and really heard. Um, But at the same time, you know, their social media, I think, has created a real world for us where we can look at our own lives and say, hey, it can look like not the person that's behind the dress on the red carpet, but the person that's on the red carpet wearing the dress. We don't want the life of that person when they're at their home, you know, figuring out how to use their new juicer and their kids are screaming and you know they haven't eaten anything but like celery and water for five days we don't want that life we don't want to know about that life but we want the one that's on the carpet we want the one that makes us laugh on tv at night we want the one that brings us to tears with such a beautiful performance and i get that i mean that's who wouldn't want that so I think, I think that there's some mirroring happening between our, our need for that kind of comfort and um, for our uh, ability to sort of check out on social media to a certain degree. But that checking out then
1: creates a scenario where you think that's all that person is. You know, you project into these lives from the outside, never knowing about the celery, never knowing about the screaming children. And it's concerning to see how people are manufacturing their own meaning through the media.
2: Even that is sort of glossified to a certain degree. Even when you see someone struggling, someone showing you what's going on that's bad in their life, there's something about it that feels like you're flipping through the pages of a magazine, right? And I do it myself. I'm just as guilty of of the performative aspect of social media, of making sure that things look great when I'm posting them, uh, that people know I'm you know, being my best self and I'm feeling great about everything. Um, that's sort of part of the voyeurism of all of it. How do you balance that with trying to be in the world in an authentic manner? I delete those apps every second I can. <laughs> every, like you know, I just did a book tour for the paperback of Era of Ignition and I, you know, did an event in Los Angeles with Amy Poehler that was really fun. And the day after, I just I deleted Instagram and Twitter. And I take breaks. Um, I force myself to because otherwise it becomes, it's just an addictive magnet in which you are going down a rabbit hole of looking at other's peop- other people's lives and comparing yourself to them. To me, it's not necessarily a checkout. It's more of a, um, uh, it's, it's more dangerous than that and you get sort of stuck looking at everything.
1: I think, I I realize that nobody ever really feels good after spending about 30 minutes on Instagram. It's just not possible. Compare
2: and despair. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, On September 16th, 2017, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times titled, I'm done with not being believed, which is your account of literally not being believed about your experiences with sexual violence. Uh, The article went on to become one of the most read and shared op-eds in New York Times history. You wrote this one month before the Me Too movement exploded. Thank you for helping to (laughs) usher in this movement, Amber. Um, You're now a founding member of Time's Up. What motivates your political activism?
2: I'm motivated by the motivation of others, I think. I come to my own forms of activism through the same means that I think other people do, other women do, I'll speak for women because those are the people I know best, um, and that is through anger and frustration and that continuous feeling of being silenced and not being able to have a voice in the world. And the way in which I've been able to show up, I hope for myself and for um the activism work that I've done, whether it's with Time's Up or not, has been in community with other women whose experiences do not reflect mine. So I'm usually not out. You're not going to catch me out. I love Alyssa Milano, but you're not going to catch me out at a you know rally with Alyssa Milano or other actresses. Um, Why not? Because I think it's our responsibility as women and especially as white women to be out in the world being in community and linking arms with women who are have come from different experiences than we do, just as I would hope that they would do the same thing. And I think our ability to understand where people come from and the way in which some communities of women have been held back more than others um, have also been silenced and erased will only further what we have so loudly been asking for when we talk about equality and feminism. Um, of which we can't have any of that unless we are having deeper, more complicated conversations with each other about what is missing. Are you
1: seeing any type of shift change in our culture now from an entertainment perspective?
2: I would definitely say so. I think it's not big enough, but it's there. I think, I'll give you an example. Um, in, I think it was like a few years ago, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which does the Academy Awards, <laughs> made this huge push to have, to broaden their membership, to include more women and people of color as they should. It was extremely white. You know, um, with with all transparency, I was became one of those members, but my father had been a member for 40 years. Um, and it's saying a lot that, you know, I had also had tenure in the business and had been never invited in. So they made this huge overhaul to try to expand their membership and diversify their membership. Um, But still, the Oscar nominations come out. And still, some of the best films of the year and the best filmmakers and the best performances, predominantly by women and people of color and women of color, are left out. And you still see a very whitewashed uh, award show. But what I thought was so powerful and what has been powerful in the last few years is that the conversation and the anger about who has been left out, about what is being left out is almost overshadowing the actual nominations themselves. This year in particular, I think it was a really great thing to see everyone and so many articles and things being written about the people who were left out, the women who were left out, the performances and how white it was. And I almost was reading more about that. And I know to a certain extent I'm in a bit of a vacuum, but I also as an Academy of Voter and, you know, the fact that my dad is it knows about all of this um, says a lot about the reach that it has and the way in which we are saying at least being taken seriously and saying it's not good enough. You're not representing the real body of art and film and, and television for that matter, that is being made. We are not representing the voices of this country and the perspectives, the point of views, the narratives of this country um, enough. And I think that the fact that that is even something that's being taken seriously in a larger context and conversation shows there's a crack, there's a shift, it's happening. It's really slow. It's frustrating because it's so slow, but it is happening.
1: What do you think of the film Parasite Sweep at the Oscars?
2: It was amazing. I was very happy. I voted for Parasite. Um, I thought it was incredible, and I thought the speeches were great. And it, uh, it, you know, that's a moment where you say, that is the film that should have won. You know, that is the movie. It was different. It was unique. and It was
1: utterly original. It was
2: so original. And with all due respect to Quentin Tarantino, until a woman can make a three-hour film where Brad Pitt drives around in a vintage car fast without a shirt on, with no plot, we have work to do.
1: (laughs) Bravo. Um, Talk about Era of Ignition. What made you decide to write this book?
2: I wrote this book first because I was approached... um, Frankly by the the editors by penguin random house and some great editors there who wanted me to do something akin to the the New York Times op-eds I had been writing Um, and They also wanted it to sort of have a bit of a memoir Style to it, which I was very eager to write. Um, I wanted to also write it in the moment so that I could remember I could remember how what a wild couple of years these last few years have been the, the, the wild, exhausting, terrifying, uncomfortable conversations that led to Time's Up being created, the way in which we were all in community with each other, but also just women having to have these conversations in rooms together that we'd never been allowed to have, you know, never. We'd, we'd been discouraged from, from ever talking about the abuse, from ever talking about the eating disorders, always. And this was like Hollywood's worst nightmare is that women were getting in these rooms together and talking. It was our worst nightmare, and it was happening. And so it was important to me important to me to almost archive that experience and the history of it while also talking a little bit about this you know ignited era, and what this feels like, this condensed, palpable rage that everyone has been using to sort of manifest very quickly um, real big. Structural change. Um, So the book came out of that the idea of sort of looking at my own existential crisis growing up uh, in my 20s and coming out on the other side of that, pressed against the lens of a country that seems to sort of constantly be going through a revolving door of its own existential crisis.
1: In the book, you write about how you've spent your whole life pretending to be other people for a living and how it can sometimes be hard to know what you're capable of becoming or what you will want once you've stopped. And in many ways, I think that this book is a way to understand that. And I'm wondering if you can close our interview today by reading a passage that I've chosen that I think really represents so much of the journey that you've taken.
2: Absolutely. Here you go, it's the starred post-it. Debbie, you're so prepared. (laughs) It's so hot. Thank you. (laughs) I was the seasoned soap opera starlet, the incidental ingenue, the accidental adolescent actress turned adult apparition, haunting her own future by existing only in her past. I was the famous one, known for being unknown. I was an ideological in-between, a neither here nor there artist taken seriously by few outside of the poetry community and even fewer within it. I was the girl who was a blind spot in the mirrors of powerful men, the girl called upon to help rewrite, workshop, or give notes on scripts by men as an assumed favor only to never be hired by them or receive any credit. I was the secret weapon for everyone else's arsenals but my own. I was the girl lost amid privilege and invisibility, forever seen for what I used to be, not who I am. That was me. That was me in the form of fading fire. And then that girl, that starlet, that in-between, that some-bodied nobody, that fading fire, was extinguished. The woman who emerged was done not just with not being believed, but also with not being listened to, taken seriously, heard, seen, counted, or chosen for the job. She was done with the doing of others, of being a Cyrano for male cisness, constantly asked by peers in positions of power to help them remain there without any reciprocity or consideration given. I was done with selling myself short so the men could buy themselves success. And if someone with the access, privilege, and reach that I grew up with was feeling this way, I could only imagine what less well-connected members of the even more greatly underrepresented communities in my industry were feeling. What has been reborn in me is being reborn in every woman across the country, My Saturn return, my soul's dizzying upheaval, my identity's eruption, my trajectory's crisis, my raw dawning was mirroring the country's Saturn's return and its own dizzying upheaval, its identity's eruption, its trajectory's crisis, its raw dawning. We are a nation that is morally backpedaling scared of change and stuck in the back pocket of social media's isolation and alienation. We are a nation that not only refuses to resolve matters face-to-face, we refuse to see eye-to-eye. We're not only lost, we're just now coming to terms with the fact that we have always been lost. And finding ourselves and others will take more than just strength, it will take stamina. This is the age of action this era of ignition. We are collective cognition's fired up engine, revving into revelation, unsure of where we are going, but knowing we can no longer stay where we have been.
1: Thank you, Amber Tamblyn. Thank you. Amber Tamblyn's latest book is Era of Ignition, Coming of Age in a Time of Rage and Revolution. And you can find out more about all of her various projects on her website, amtam.com. This is the 15th anniversary episode of Design Matters, and we're recording live at WNYC's Green Space in New York City. And I'd like to thank you all for listening all these years. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, And a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.